Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 86 of Lockdown Canadians. We are your forever hopeful and then despondent and then hopeful again daily Montreal Canadiens podcast, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, where you can get your team every single day. I am, of course, one of your co-hosts. I am Scott Metlin. I am joined, as always, by the active stick, Laura Saba. Laura, how are you on this wonderful Sunday? I'm good. I'm not going to watch the Super Bowl. I've decided to take some me time and not watch some sports. So we're recording this right after the Columbus game. And, you know, we watched it for you guys and we're going to recap it for you guys. And then I'm going to wash my hands off of sports for the next day and a half. Yeah, it's been uh, between this and the episode we have coming out on Tuesday. It's been quite a week in the Canadians fan base and to say it has been exhausting would be putting it lightly, but we're going to delve into that over the next two episodes a little bit here. But, as always, it is Monday. That means one thing. It's Monday, and that's terrible. But it also means we have the Lockdown Canadians Listener of the Week. And this one goes back to last week when Montreal played in Buffalo, where they picked up a 3-1 win over the Buffalo Sabres, a big win for them. And this one comes from follower and listener Ryan, and if I'm pronouncing this sorry, I'm, I, if I'm pronouncing this wrong, I'm sorry. Uh, Ryan Brajak, who listened and was inspired enough by our episode to surprise his two kids with a trip to the game in Buffalo where they won, so at least he got a good entertaining game out of it. And as always, if you want to be one of our listeners of the week, please interact with the Twitter account at LO underscore Canadians. Send us questions, anything that you could possibly imagine, and we'll pick you as Listener of the Week every single Monday. And also, as part of Monday, it is time for the Lockdown Canadians Player of the Week. And Laura, I think this might be the first time that you you and I have been unanimous on who we're selecting, right? And also the first time that we had one candidate that ran away with the vote more than anything else. I know there's only two of us, but sometimes we'll have to have a little bit of a debate before. This time, no debate necessary. Our player of the week is Jeff Petrie. And with a four-assist performance against the Florida Panthers, the other couple games don't really matter because I want to say four points is the most any Canadians player has had in a single game and there's always talk that is Petrie, you know, should he go up on the trade block? Should they do this? Should they do that? And a guy who in the 48 hours prior had two of his kids go to the emergency room for various things, then went out at, well, he was in Buffalo. His wife took their two kids on separate trips to the ER for different things. And then Petrie comes back to Montreal, plays a game on Saturday, and puts up four assists in a 4 nothing shutout over a team they're chasing for a playoff berth. It doesn't really get much better than that if you're a defenseman for the Canadians, I feel like. I just decided that we should call this episode Jeff Baytree. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's your episode, and it's your <sighs> call, but isn't he Bay? He is, but it doesn't work. It's not like Shea Weber where his name rhymes with Bay. <laughs> okay, I, fine. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call this episode Yup, 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 cause of Petrie the Dinosaur in the Land Before Time. That's today's episode. <laughs> and when people tell me, are you against trading Jeff Petrie? I'ma go, Yup, 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 get out of my face. <laughs> we've talked about it in prior episodes. Trading him, 
who the hell is going to replace him in the lineup right now? I don't know any of the defensemen on this team that are going to get four assists in a game right now. Honestly, when Shea Weber was struggling at the beginning of the year coming back, who picked up the slack? Who was basically the only competent defenseman they had? Because if you remember, Ben Sherrod had some struggles early on as well. Those first two weeks honestly solidified, in my opinion, Jeff Petrie's value to this team. And I just want to say, because sometimes things are about the Leafs, do you know who could use a player like Jeff Petrie right about now? The Toronto Maple Leafs, but they're stupid and I hate them, so and no. And they can't they don't... have them. Exactly. And if you're trade, okay, we're going to, I I try to not mock trade scenarios because it's the NHL and anything could happen. If your trade scenario is for a guy who was getting Norris votes last year, is Jeremy Bracco in a second round pick, I need you to, you're in Canada clearly, go to your doctor with your free healthcare and have them surgically remove your head from your butt. Because that's clearly where you have it stuck if that's what you think Jeff Petrie's value is right now. Jeremy Bracco's not even the best player on the Marlies, and a second round pick could be anything. It could even be another Jeff Petrie. Or, 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 the Canadians can keep Jeff Petrie and not ruin my life. And I'm going to go with they should keep Jeff Petrie and not ruin my life. <laughs> so to sum up, Leafs fans, no Jeff Petrie for you. Yeah, exactly. You don't get to have a Jeff Petrie because you don't deserve to have a Jeff Petrie because you're all smug and I dislike you. Also, I'm not going to have – where are they going to fit that under the cap when Morgan Riley's back? Jeff Petrie has another year on his contract. There's no way they can actually make that work. And that's the best part about the Jeremy Bracco trade thing is, oh, Montreal will just retain some salary on it. Why would we give up the better player and retain salary for a lesser player, a mediocre pick, and to help out our main rival within the division? None of that makes any sense whatsoever. I know Mark Bergevin has his up and downs at GM. But I, even I don't think he's that stupid. I think. <laughs> he's absolutely not that stupid. And you know what we still haven't done was we wanted to talk about uh, Craig Custance of The Athletic did one of those things where he had followers send him trade proposals and then he like ran them by somebody in the front office on an NHL team. And we, we said we were going to talk about it. It's kind of like past past the time and I passed the moment to talk about it now, but honestly, I feel like somebody should show an NHL front office that specific trade, Jeff Petrie for Bracco and a second rounder and see what happens and how quickly they get laughed out of the room. But yeah. I know we're going to talk a little bit more about trades for the rest of this episode. And then later on, uh, on the Tuesday episode. But the, the one thing that I will say is that Yes, it's true that he's got one year left and he's probably going to want money and that he's getting older. I completely understand that. But what I think, I think a hundred percent, you know, I have no, like I'm not wavering at all in this opinion. I think what the Habs should do if they're talking about managing the asset that is Jeff Petrie is they should keep him and figure out what's going to happen around the trade deadline next year. Like they have a year in which they can worry about it. Maybe next year goes the same as this year and you have to ask the same question. Maybe next year the Canadians take a giant leap forward and maybe he decides to stay and for a reasonable term. I, I'm not saying that he should take a hometown discount. I'm saying that he should take a reasonable amount of money and amount of years. But we don't have to worry about that for another year. Yeah, and 
someone in a similar situation is one Thomas Tatar, but we will get into his situation and Ilya Kovalchuk talking about the return of Brendan Gallagher and the two Canadians games this weekend right after this. If you've been a listener of this podcast, I'm sure you've heard all the great advertisers working with Lockdown to reach sports fans, but you may not know that Lockdown Canadians is a great way for your local business to reach passionate Canadians fans just like you. Unlike any other podcast, Lockdown gives your local company the unique ability to reach local podcast listeners. Not just any podcast listener, a Locked On podcast listener. If your company wants to connect with Canadians fans in a predominantly male audience that is well-educated with disposable income, then let's put your company right here on this Locked On podcast. Local fans love to support local businesses, so if you text the word advertising to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcast.com slash advertising and let us know who we are, we'll get our team to help you achieve your Locked On advertising success. Once again, Text the word advertising to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcast.com slash advertising, and we look forward to hearing from you. So this weekend is, it's family weekend, it's Super Bowl weekend, and because it's Super Bowl weekend, the Canadians played a pair of 2 o'clock games, which threw my entire schedule out of whack, quite frankly, at work, trying to figure out how I could watch these games. And they went one and one on the weekend with a dominant four nothing win over the Florida Panthers, and then coming up short four three to the Columbus Blue Jackets on Sunday. And as of right now, I believe the Canadians sit eight points out of a playoff spot. Had they won today, it would have been down to six. So they might be a little bit more, a little bit less. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but this team clearly just doesn't know how to quit trying. And I, we talk so much about tanking and quitting on coaches. Every single game, it seems like this team just doesn't know how to actually stop trying and lose, unless I'm, you know, not watching close enough, I guess. I think the reinjection of Brendan Gallagher has done a lot to motivate this team. But even before that, I think the introduction of Ilya Kovalchuk did as well. I saw some commentary, I think it was yesterday, talking about the effect that Kovalchuk has had on this team and on some of the younger players just in terms of, uh, I guess, enjoying and trying to be more creative and trying to sort of live up to their potential. Truly, we don't know what's going on in the room, so we can't be sure, but it seems like it has been a positive addition. And like we keep saying here, you know, he's he's 36 years old, but nobody tell him because he doesn't seem to have any idea. And so I think you know, the little sparks are there, and I feel like when you are, I guess, conditioned is is the best word to put it, uh, like to try and be as excellent as possible as any elite athlete or performer is, I truly think that, like, they're more likely to respond to the positive sparks than to the idea of, you know, all these players that are here, like, they don't care what's going to happen five years from now. They want to win now, and they want to do their best now. So you kind of have to work with that. And, you know, the Canadians margin for loss is down to four games, unfortunately. But again, we never know what could happen. And I think that the the problem with the Columbus game is that Columbus has been very effective this year at choking their opponents down and uh, eliminating their creativity. So I think that's kind of what happened there. But I feel like we should talk about the Florida game first because that's more fun. 
Yeah, the Florida game was nothing short of the Canadians with this current lineup playing as well as they could have. Brendan Gallagher was great. Thomas Tatar was great. Arturi Lekkinen and Yoel Armia were great. Again, they were very good against Buffalo. And Jeff Petrie, as we talked about in the first segment, had four assists in that game. He makes things happen. And we talked so much about trying to figure out the defense. There's something that when Brett Kulak and Jeff Petrie get their synergy going in a game, they're both so good. And they do the little small things properly. And they're playing with confidence. And it's the kind of game that you look at and go, we talked about it last week. Why not this team? They can do it. And this is a team still without Druin, without Byron, with Kotkaniemi in the AHL, with Kale Fleury in the AHL, with Paling a healthy scratch. And they're still putting on a performance like that against a very good and very dangerous Panthers team that, you know, the last time the Panthers and Canadians played, the Panthers crushed them. And the Canadians came out and just did, they came out, they came out quick. They never let Florida really get back into the flow of the game and just kept the pressure on, and eventually Florida blinked first, and that's how they won. The Canadians game has always been about needing to keep that pressure on. We've seen it so many times that when they kind of relax, the air comes out of the balloon, and they have trouble getting it back sometimes. In this game, they just did not let Florida breathe at all, it seems. And that's kind of what you have to do to win games when the other team has more depth and talent than you do. I don't necessarily feel that Columbus does, but I feel that Florida did. And so the result was a bit unexpected. I think Florida kind of seemed to me at the beginning of the year to have a similar problem to the Canadians where they had depth, but they they didn't have the big name elite players or as many big name elite players as would be required to be successful. But they did surprise over the course of the season. So I think for me, like that's something that the Canadians did so successfully and unfortunately they were not able to replicate it. I think, I think they sort of Columbus just did better at that specific tactic, right? Yeah. Columbus managed to just kind of, they have this ability that when they want to lock down, they do. When the Canadians try to lock down, they don't have the same quality in their defense to do so. Like, John Tortorella this year has been a revelation as a coach without, you know, losing Panarin and losing Duchesne and losing his goaltender. And he's got Elvis Merzlikens in goal, and he's been incredible that he can rely on him that when he tries to clamp the game down that his goal is going to make the big stops. Not that Carey Price is anything to, you know, is anything to sneeze at, but Columbus, when they go into the shell to protect a lead, they're protecting the lead. They, you know, snuff out any attack. They make it so hard to find space to work. Florida just kind of allowed the Canadians to continue to attack with speed, so Montreal never had to take their foot off the gas. Columbus kind of forced them to take their foot off the gas, and when they did that, the whole game just came to a screeching halt, and Montreal couldn't get that momentum going. They got within a goal late, then they gave up an empty netter, and then they got within a goal again, but it's too little too late against a team that has just through 30 minutes or so just strangled the life out of you. It's so hard to get back up into the game when you're facing a team that just does not let you have any space to move or breathe at all. 
And that's also something that I find the Canadians are, are sort of building on and working on is try to be the kind of team that's fast enough to overcome something like that. I don't think that they're there yet, but I do have faith that that's the kind of thing that any, any, any elite contending team would be able to work around and play around that. Like I'm thinking of Columbus in a seven game series against a more talented team. I think that the Canadians have to get to the point where like they would be the more talented team. And so in a seven game series, yes, they might be able to, uh, sorry, the opponent might be able to win a game or two, but really the talent's going to overcome all of that. I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm right in my, in my sort of like my philosophy on this, but I do think that that's, that's sort of, that's where I stand on this kind of game. Like how, how, how do the Canadians overcome that? Like they just have to be faster and more talented. Yeah. And part of that is, is just, and we've talked about it so much this year. They just don't have the same high end talent to break through on that. Like when the Oilers struggle, they can put Connor McDavid out there. When the Capitals are struggling, they have Alex Ovechkin. When the Penguins are struggling, they put out Sidney Crosby and things like that. When the Canadians are struggling, if their top line can't break through, they kind of struggle to find that same thing. And they're just lacking that high-end game-breaker. And maybe Cole Caulfield is that guy in the future. Maybe Jonathan Drouin, when he comes back, can be that guy. But they don't have it right now, so they need to just their big thing is they have to roll their depth and just keep the pressure on to try and, you know, compensate for that lack of that. And like we saw against Florida, it worked very well where every line was effective in one way or another against Columbus. They didn't have that same success, whether it just wasn't their game or something like that. It was a hard thing for them. It's got to be a tough pill to swallow when they played so well the day before and admittedly played well against Columbus but just couldn't break through late when they needed to. That's got to sting, I think, the most out of all of this. It does. And honestly, if they had at least, you know, a couple more of those more elite talents, you know, you think about the matchup, the line matchup, the line matching and things like that. If you, if, if the other team is focusing on your top line, you can take a talented player, throw them on the second or third line if you're trying to get something going and the Canadians don't really have that option right now. Yeah. And, but what they do have in this lineup is a Thomas Tatar who is continuing to absolutely dominate the score sheet and a resurgent Ilya Kovalchuk who is up to 10 points in 12 games. And we've got a little bit of an update on their situation relating to the trade deadline. And we'll get on that right in our final segment. Going into, I believe it was Saturday's game, or maybe it was on Friday evening, uh, Pierre Lebrun of The Athletic put out that the asking price is no less than a second-round pick for Ilya Kovalchuk right now in Montreal with how well he's played. And also along with that, we have to assume that if it's at least a second-round pick for Kovalchuk, the asking price for Tatar has to be even higher than that, I would imagine, and... I know we talked in the first segment about not trading uh, Jeff Petrie until maybe next year, depending on what the team looks like. And maybe Thomas Tatar is in the same situation. But what would we consider too good of a package to pass up for someone like Thomas Tatar going into this deadline? I'm going to say second round pick and roster player. It's such a hard thing to do because Tatar, when he was traded to Vegas, was traded for a first, second, and a third when he had something like 28 points in 40-something games. 
This year he has 48 points in like 53 games or something similar to that. And he's legitimately part of one of the best lines in hockey right now. If I'm Mark Bergevin, I'm not asking like, you know, elite prospect, but I'm asking for a first and something else fairly high end in that deal because without Tatar, they're missing a guy who's getting 20 goals is going to easily crack the 50 point plateau again in Montreal. He's on, he's pacing for career highs in a year where he's been without his, you know, other winger for parts of it on a team that struggled to score goals. If I'm Bergevin and I know that now that Chris Kreider is out for the Rangers with an upper body injury, Tatar has to be the premier name on the market right now. You can set the asking price and if you keep him, it's not the end of the world because then you get him next year when this team should be getting ready to be contending for a playoff berth again. It's really a no-lose situation for Bergevin unless he opts to settle and just take the first package that comes his way. It doesn't seem to me that Mark Bergevin would do something like that, though, because it's not Thomas Tatar's last season. They still have him for another year under under the same cap hit. So it does make sense to sort of... I guess do the thing that they, that I, I would advocate they do with Jeff Petrie and just wait until next year and see. But at the same time, there are teams now that are trying to make the playoffs, that are trying to make noise, that are trying to win. And if Tatar can help them, I, I understand that the bidding war would be a little bit higher and a little bit more, uh, I guess intense or more frenzied. And Mark Bergevin would have more things to choose from. And I guess what he would do at this point depends on where he sees the team next year. I don't think that, you know, his favorite thing is talking about not not handcuffing the team in the future by making a decision today. But if you're getting enough, like if you're getting a young enough player, if you're getting enough prospects or picks, like to me, it's kind of a no-brainer. I just, I, I wonder if other GMs would be a bit too conservative in uh, this year's trade deadline. I think the last couple of years of trade deadline and, and um, free agent frenzy have been a little bit less frenzied than normal. And it looks like teams are trying to make more sensible, efficient moves than uh, making splashes. So at the same time, you know what? Like you have to think about the fact that a player like Thomas Tatar, like you said, now with Chris Kreider out, he's got to be the highest name on the market. They don't come come around very often. So it's it's a tough call to make to see whether the Habs would be better off without him for another year. Yeah, and like Tatar is the one that I want to keep because I know now two years in, he's going to mesh and we know that this is what he is. The interesting part for me is Ilya Kovalchuk, who from my fan perspective, I love it. I love this story and I love everything about it. But the part of me looking at this analytically goes, if we get a second round pick for a guy we're paying less than $300,000 for on a two-way contract, you take that and run every single day of the week because we don't know if his run of luck is, you know, just that. Is it luck? Is it skill? Um, with Kovalchuk, it's a bit of a wild card. And while I'm loving it, I love watching Ilya Kovalchuk in a Canadian's uniform, which is an amazingly odd thing to say still. It's, do you do the smart thing as a GM and go, we're going to trade you, and then on July 1st, we're going to sign you to a one-year deal to kind of bring you back next year and see where you fit in, or do you just keep them 
it, I guess a lot of it depends on what do you get offered. If a team like right on the fringe offers you a second round pick or a decent prospect, do you, do you pull the trigger and you make it happen? It's not an easy situation, but the Kovalchuk one is more that I've come to grips with. If they trade him, it's understandable and I get it. Whereas Tatar seems to be with his contract term and how he's fit into this team and how much he means to this team that trading him right now might not make the most sense when there's still next year to look forward to when the team is going to be fully healthy and ready to play again. I think a lot of it also depends on Kovalchuk himself. We talked about it in earlier episodes too. I think he's at a stage in his career where he really wants to win. And I can't sit here and tell you that Montreal is going to give him the best chance next year to win. I think that he has bonded with the team and the coach in such a way that there would be a reason for him to come back. And I think that you, you, you know, you can ask him, like, would you come back if we trade you to a contender now? Would you want to come back at all? Like, should we open those conversations again in July? And there's no telling what he will do. But at the same time, we all know what this was. He signed for league minimum in order to prove himself, in order to get a contract next year. And we all assumed that it was going to be somewhere else. We didn't know how well he would gel with the coach and the system. And so if you're a team and people keep talking, well, you know, he has such a low cap hit that it's such a no brainer to trade for him. And that's very understandable, but you also have to look at the other team's systems. And is he going to fit in there in the like six weeks or whatever it is, the, the two months left for them to make the playoffs? You know, other teams have to make those considerations too. And I see like, honestly, a lot of GMs will probably be like, let's just roll the dice because he can fit under the cap for so many teams that are like right up against it. I, if I were another GM, I'd be stupid not to try to trade for him. And if I were the Habs, I'd be stupid not to try and re-sign him in July. I think that's kind of, I think we're in agreement on this, is that it sucks to watch him go now, considering how well he's fit in. But in the long run, he can still come back in July. You're going to recoup assets for someone you paid literally nothing for, and that makes you a better off team. And maybe if they trade Kovalchuk, someone like Kotkaniemi comes up from the AHL, or some of the other young kids who are looking to play more, especially if the season's lost and they want to play the youth in the NHL, trading Kovalchuk opens up that spot. But on the flip side, how much can he teach some of these guys that he's playing with, you know, playing on a line with Armia and Lekkanen or playing on the power play with Nick Suzuki? What can he teach them? And is that worth more than anything they could recoup at the deadline? You know, there's so many things that we don't see from outside you know, on this side of the curtain, so to speak. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, they brought him in is they know he has experience. They know what he was capable of. And this has worked out better than we've all thought. And now players like Suzuki and Lekkanen and, you know, all these young guys are playing so much better since he's arrived. It's not really a mystery why. He's a guy that knows and has seen everything there is to see in the game. When Nick Suzuki or whoever goes up on the bench and be like, hey, I tried to do this, you know, what's going on out here? And he points out and reads the play or teaches them, you know, just little things on, you know, getting more out of their shots. There's so many little things he can teach every single game. And I I will make no bones about it. I will be sad to see him go, even though he's been here like a month. But at the same time, I would fully understand it. 
the Thomas Tatar one and Jeff Petrie are very complicated because they have another year on their contract and can still contribute to this squad next year, unless by some miracle Mark Bergevin gets someone in to replace them as well. And I mean actually replace them, not like tank level replace them. I mean physically be as good as that person. And that's something that probably doesn't happen until the summer at most, I would imagine. And that's another question, Mark. I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more on the Tuesday episode, but we still haven't established whether or not the management is going to be the same in the summer. And, we're, you know, I guess it depends on your perspective about whether or not you would consider, you know, the current the current management a failure or not. And it depends on all kinds of factors. But at the same time, I would imagine the way that it's trending now, it doesn't seem like Mark Bergevin will get fired or let go in the offseason. I so assuming that all things stay the way that they are, I feel like, you know, the conversations that we have in the summer are pretty much the same conversations that we're going to be having now. It's like, what do you do in the future? What do you do moving forward? So I don't know. I don't, I don't envy Jeff Molson, the decision that he has to make. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of questions that lie ahead. It's, are they going to sell these players? Are the, is Mark Bergman going to be the one around to sell these players? Is it going to be a new coach who's going to come in and go, well, I don't want this guy, this guy, this guy, get rid of them. I want this guy and this guy. There's a lot of question marks ahead, and like you said, in Thursday's episode, we'll touch a little bit more on that because there's now some uncertainty, but not anything too crazy about the role of one Yasperi Kotkaniemi, but we're going to touch on that in tomorrow's episode. Today's episode as it stands, we are we are done for the day, folks. I am sorry. Thank you so much for listening, as always. If you're looking to follow the show, we are at LO underscore Canadians. You can find us on Spotify, Google, Apple, Podstitch, or wherever you get your shows. You can follow Laura at The Active Stick. You can follow myself at Scott Matla, and we'll see you all on Tuesday.